Rob, long time no talk. How's your fantasy football team doing? Uh, well, I'm in three leagues, so three teams. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I've had more before. I, I cut down to three, <laughs> so I didn't have the best weekend. Um, one of my teams did well; the other two underperformed. But uh, you know, when you have three, you kind of have one that's your baby, and then a couple cast-offs leagues that you got invited to last minute because they needed someone. My favorite team did quite well, so we'll we'll see. Okay. Kelly, have you ever had a fantasy football team? I've never done it. Yeah, a couple of times. I had it with some coworkers a long time ago. It didn't do very well. I've played fantasy soccer, which should surprise <laughs> no one. And everyone's <laughs> like, how do you do that? Yeah, I'm curious. I'll explain that on another episode. <laughs> oh, before we get too much farther, uh, for those of you who have not been with us for almost a year now, you might not recognize the third voice that you've heard. That is Dr. Robert Margeson from Regis University, who on our zombie apocalypse episode last Halloween was our apocalypse aficionado. Yes. And today we have him on as our football aficionado. Yes, I have very diverse uh, areas of expertise in zombie apocalypse is NFL football. So I am in Denver, Colorado. And for anyone who's ever passed through or spent any time in Denver, football is a religion here. Denver Broncos football is the most important thing in this entire state for several months a year. It's all we talk about and all we care about. Should I apologize for the Seattle game on Monday? Anyway, so Josh, you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering how many uh, Broncos players you have in your fantasy football team. Oh, I, I'm stocked with Broncos players. <laughs> <laughs> probably to my detriment, my loyalty to the brand probably overrides my reasoning uh, when it comes to player selection. But I, I probably... You know, on a team of about 16 players, um, I'm about 25% Broncos players. Irrationally large number, considering. At least you're loyal, not a bandwagon fan. Yes, I'm loyal to a fault, honestly. Well, considering you don't have entirely a Denver roster, I got to ask if you've got Russell Wilson on your team. Hell yeah, I have Russell Wilson on my team. Are you kidding me? I've actually had Russell Wilson on my team every year for the last five years. It just so happened that this year he was a Bronco. So I am, uh, to use Russell Wilson's language, ride or die with Russell Wilson. May he bless you with his Super Bowl ring as well. I hope so. God, I hope so. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. All right, Rob. So if you had an all-time fantasy football team, who would you pick for quarterback? Do you want my heart or do you want reason? Well, we've already established that you're not rational with your choices. <laughs> okay, well, then if I get to be irrational, I'm going with John Elway, the saint of Denver Broncos football, five-time Super Bowl participant, two-time Super Bowl champion. That's where my heart lies. If I had to uh, debate you on uh, the facts, it, and it just just crushes me to even say out loud <laughs> probably tom brady oh gross <laughs> you can if you want to delete that part or maybe beep it out so that no one ever hears me having said that well, maybe we'll get some angry letters we can forward to you mm-hmm. yeah you can't argue seven super bowls super bowl wins not just seven super bowls but i you know elway i'm an elway guy he is this the patron saint of, of football in denver you know i read a statistic the other day that said 
it is more likely statistically that Tom Brady is going to make the Super Bowl than Steph Curry is going to make a three pointer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which just blows my mind. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, well, he's, like I said, he's got seven wins. I think he's got two or three losses, at least two, maybe three. So 10, nine or 10 Super Bowls total. It's unreal. Unreal. So, okay, that's your quarterback. Who would you pick for center? See, now that's a tough one because playing fantasy, I, I don't pick centers. Oh, that shows how much I know. And it's a, it's an obscure position. I mean, I'm going to go with Anthony Munoz, this uh, longtime center for the Cincinnati Bengals, perennial all-star football or all-pro football player. Probably if I was going to build my uh, ultimate fantasy football historic team, probably put Munoz at center. I couldn't even name a center. It's a weird position. It's not a it's not a glory position by any stretch of the imagination. But it's in the middle. Yeah. It's an important position. They're all important. It's just not a it's not a glamorous position by any stretch. How about the the one name that I have heard of mm-hmm. that will be leading us into the podcast is Iron Mike Webster. How about him? From the Steelers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that Steelers team that from the seventies is up there with any of the best teams in NFL history, um, the run they had. And uh, he anchored that offensive line. He was the person that, you know, primarily responsible for protecting the quarterback and did a fantastic job. There's no denying his uh, ability at that position. Great, great player. Great player. I did a little bit of research. <laughs> Sometimes we pretend like we know stuff on this podcast. This one, I'm not even going to pretend. So we did a lot of reading. And uh, I guess he won four Super Bowl victories from 1974 to 1979. Yeah. And is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 1997. Yeah. And I believe he is no longer with us. No. That just points to the fact that the NFL is not entirely Super Bowl victories or Hall of Fame appearances. There are many controversies that we'll be covering today on this episode of Indubitably. We have, speaking of Iron Mike, We'll be leading off with medical concerns around the league. There's also some pretty serious racial issues. And then last, I suppose we will cover what we've called the crime problem. Of all the professional sports leagues out there, especially in the United States, the NFL has the ugliest stuff going on behind the curtain, for sure. And as a fan, a dedicated fan, it will be difficult for me to defend a lot of the choices that the NFL makes as they pertain to the safety of their players and issues around progress, race, things like that. So yeah, it's mm. the NFL is pretty nasty. Well, I think it's fitting since we do have Rob back uh, from our zombie episode, maybe we should start with the subject of brains. Well, as we mentioned, Iron Mike Webster is no longer with us. Webster died in 2002 at the age of 50 of a heart attack and subsequently was the first former NFL player diagnosed with CTE or Let's see if I can get this in one go. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now our listeners are going to wonder if we just edited it out or that was actually the first time you said it. We wouldn't lie to our listeners. It's first time. I can verify it was the first time. (laughs) (laughs) This diagnosis was performed by Dr. Bennett Amalu, who is a forensic neuropathologist, and he examined the tissue from Webster and eight other NFL players. Is that the guy from the Will Smith movie? Yes, it is. Yes, exactly. The movie Concussion. Apparently, uh, Will Smith has a problem with head trauma unless it's induced by him slapping you upside the face. (laughs) But after this examination, Dr. Amalu found that Webster's brain resembled that of boxers who are suffering from dementia pugilistica, also known as punch drunk syndrome. CTE can only be diagnosed posthumously. But there are many symptoms that are apparent while people are still alive. 
Those symptoms include memory loss, confusion, impaired judgment, impulse control problems, aggression, depression, anxiety, suicidality, Parkinsonism, and eventually progressive dementia. Oh, that is a lot. I didn't realize some of those things. I I knew dementia was a big problem in the NFL. I didn't know that all of that stuff could be linked to this sort of head trauma. I think that there's a significant discussion about erratic behavior of people who used to play as well. And I think that can clearly be tied to some of these symptoms. I mean, you have to accept the fact, I don't know if that's the right turn of phrase I want. I mean, a majority of an NFL game consists of very large, strong men launching themselves headfirst into other very large, strong men. And the NFL has tried, and we could talk about those attempted remedies, to minimize the impact that the game has on the player brain. But when you have a six foot six, 265 pound guy running down the field full speed and someone of equal size running directly at him, and they both lower their head to uh, minimize the impact. I'm not saying this is okay. It's, it's, it's inevitable. That's one example. You also have guys at the line of scrimmage. You got these guys that are all six, eight, 300 and something pounds blasting off the line of scrimmage head first into one another. The game is absolutely constructed in such a way as to create this problem. And, you know, the NFL has attempted remedies in terms of helmet construction and, and passing rules that limit the player's ability to lead with the crown of their helmet. But in a game that's moving that quickly, it's really, really difficult for a player who's closing in on another player at the ball to stop and think, okay, before I hit this guy, I got to make sure that I'm not leading with the crown of my helmet, that I'm leading with my face mask, that if he ducks his head down, I have to make sure in the split second I have to make a decision that I'm not going to hit him in the head because he put his head in the way of my my trajectory. I mean, there's nothing about the game that isn't going to lead to this problem. Well, and even if more recently there there have been some attempts to regulate, correct me if I'm wrong, but post-Webster's case, the NFL was actually denying that this was even a problem. Yeah, of course they were, because it's a PR nightmare. And it, it sets them up. Probably the most important thing for the NFL is it sets them up for litigation, right? Because if they were to admit that the very nature of the sport will necessarily lead to CTE in a, a large percentage of the player population, then what's to stop players from demanding some form of, of compensation post NFL career? And so the end, you know, the NFL doesn't want to open itself up. It's a business. Um, again, I'm not defending it. I sound like I'm an ardent defender. I think it's BS. But if you are a multi-billion dollar business and, and you have to stand up publicly and say, the end result of our business is that we are going to knock a majority of our employees senseless for the rest of their life, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna deny it. Mm-hmm. You're gonna do everything you can to deny it as long as you can. You know, they, they denied it as long as they could before the science eventually caught up with it. You know, Webster, we said, was the first case where this was found, but the one that might have really brought reality to the NFL was the case of Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver Chris Henry. Mm. And he was diagnosed with CTE shortly after his death. Like Kelly mentioned, this is something that could only be diagnosed posthumously. Mm -hmm. Um, But his death, as opposed to Webster dying at 50, Chris Henry died at 26 years old. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an eye opener right there. Yeah, because it's not just the NFL. These are players that are playing at full contact eight or nine years old. And they go full contact through 
you know, Pop Warner in elementary school. They go full contact through high school. They go through full contact through college. So, look, the average career of an NFL player is four years. That's not a long career by any stretch. There are some unique criticisms that the NFL should face, considering how they've been reluctant to share information. In particular, until 2012, the league failed to openly share the data on player concussions, which is the common cause of the issue that develops into CTE. Concussions happen every game, every game. You know, they might not diagnose a concussion every game, but there's concussions happening in every game. They used to just take the player, give them a little smelling salt, and say, get back out. And those, see, these players would be concussed playing the game. Mm-hmm. You know, recent, in, in the last decade or so, the NFL finally put percussion, concussion protocol into games and, and, and have uh, doctors on the sideline who are supposedly neutral, um, which I believe, uh, from what I've seen, I've seen concussion protocol for MLS. Uh, They're playing without helmets and they bonk themselves quite a bit too. It seems like it's a really quick check. They just bring them to the sidelines and they check their eyes and like ask them some questions. And the MLS actually increased the amount of substitutes they could have to account for players that needed to be subbed off for concussions. But is that kind of similar to how the NFL handles it? Oh yeah, they take them into a tent on the sideline so you can't see what's happening. They flash the light in their eyes and make sure they can follow the light. And they ask him if they know what city they're in. And then they ask him if they know what day it is. And they ask him if they know the name of their son or daughter. And, you know, if you can answer those questions, you can go back out. Although I will say, from what I've seen and read, it's pretty good in the NFL. I I don't get the feeling nowadays that they're rushing players back onto the field with concussions the way they used to. doesn't mean it's a perfect protocol, but there seems to be erring on the side of caution. But that's, I mean, I think that it's important we don't understate how often this happens. Rob, you said there's a concussion in in every game. Even though the NFL was trying to hide data on the frequency of these issues, specifically CTE, eventually we have independent research being conducted. One of those studies was conducted by Boston University that found out of 111 brains of former NFL players that were examined, there was evidence of CTE in 110 samples. Uh-huh. That was out of 111, 110 found evidence. Yeah. That's wild. 99%. Yeah, you mentioned the, the death of a player. I think I think the, the death maybe that rocked NFL fandom more than any other was Junior Seau. Long time, all pro, one of the best ever linebackers for the San Diego Chargers and then ended up with the Patriots for a couple of Super Bowls. Absolutely beloved, beloved figure in the NFL. He ended up killing himself because of the, the depression, anxiety, PTSD associated with CTE. And what he did, and this is actually quite common, he killed himself by shooting himself in the chest. And that's kind of common with these players who they want to end their life, but they want to preserve their brain so that it can be studied for CTE. So a lot of the players who do end up committing suicide as a result of CTE, and suicide is a very real possibility in the situation are aware of how messed up their brains are because of football. So they're like, I will do everything to end my life, but preserve my brain for study. So players, they know as well. You know, it's not like it's a secret. But I mean, I I guess for me, the question is, what the hell do you do about it? It does seem like the NFL is starting to acknowledge that, though, even if it might just be for... I don't know, the appearance of doing something in the in the public realm. But in 2016, the NFL began the Play Smart, Play Safe initiative, which included taking better steps to try to prevent brain injury and then also sharing a lot of the research that they've come up with 
in studying brain injuries that players experience. And this is some of the stuff you were talking about, Rob. They have some rule changes that were put into place. They look at some of the equipment, uh, for example, in 2017, and that's only five years ago, only 41% of the helmets that were used in the league were designated as best performing. And in fact, nearly one in five players, this is in 2017, were using suboptimal models of helmets that are now banned. So just five years ago, 20% of the players were using helmets that we now don't think are acceptable to be playing the sport in. Yeah, because they're comfortable, because they're lightweight, they're comfortable, they're the helmets that they had played in since they were in Pop Warner back in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And so they, they say, this is the helmet that I've always played with, and this is the helmet that's comfortable with me. You suddenly hand me this helmet that's 25% bigger because it's filled with all sorts of padding, and a lot of players who are creatures of habit don't want to use that equipment. I mean, I'd love to see in 10 years the the studies to see if there's any decrease in CTE because of rule changes in helmets. But it's not just the contact. It's it's the contact in the brain rattling around inside your skull. And I don't know how much padding mm-hmm. you know, can stop that particular part of the process. It might minimize some of the contact. But again, I'd love to, in 10 years, I'd love to see the study that says, hey, it worked. Yeah, you're not the only one that's pessimistic about this. One of the names from football that I do recognize, Brett Favre, he said that the only way to make the game safer is not to play. I think it's interesting because he obviously didn't make that choice. He uh, somehow, maybe, I don't know, has a few things that could be attributed to CTE with some of his erratic behavior choices. Yeah, some pictures sent, some uh, loans taken out during COVID. (laughs) Um, are in the headlines right now, but he's a scumbag. <laughs> he is a scumbag. But he might be, you know, like it's hard to, okay, what do we contribute to that? You know, just him as a person, or what do we attribute to that? You know, we're going to give him CTs an excuse. <laughs> but e- either way, I mean, he has this informed consent. Like he's obviously aware that the game is unsafe. He's the one that says the only way to be safe is not to play. He continued to play with a career that's longer than most people. Sure. And he's an adult. Should we be telling him, despite everything we just listed, all of the issues that we just talked about, if you're an adult and you want to bash your brain against somebody else's brain, you know, 20, 30 times a game, should you be allowed to do that? Well, going back to our episode on dangerous jobs, we allow people to put themselves in all kinds of risky situations as long as they know the terms. It seems like at this point, with the amount of data that has come out and the amount of public acknowledgement the NFL has made, Anybody going into the sport has to know what they're getting into. Of course they do. Does that make it okay then? Does it make it okay to allow them to do it? They know fully what they're signing up for. Yeah, I'm okay with adults who are fully informed making a decision. I'm especially comfortable, and, and maybe this is a little too capitalist for even my own taste. Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Denver Broncos, the re- you know, recent quarterback signing to the Denver Broncos, Signed a $250 million contract a couple weeks ago. And that makes him, I think, the second highest paid quarterback in the NFL. And the quarterback position is paid way more than any other position. But if someone comes along and tells me, look, I, I can make the type of money that will provide a comfortable life for me and my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren, because that's how much, I mean, Russell Wilson's not going to spend $250 million in his lifetime. 250 says contract, you know, let's not even get into endorsements and stuff. Dude's making, you know, half a billion dollars a year. Does that mean 
it's okay that we bash his brains in. He's a quarterback, so he probably doesn't get CTE, honestly. They're so protected. But if someone tells me I understand the risk, but I am in a position here where I can provide a life for myself and future generations, I, far be it for me to say no, because you're going to get CTE. Is a big part of that perhaps that the people who are signing these contracts initially are either just out of college or may have left college to play, and they're not really thinking about the long-term consequences, the attractive deal of joining the NFL and getting all those endorsements means I don't really need to think about what's going to happen 30 years from now. And, you know, maybe the science will get better and I won't get hurt. But let's keep in mind, it's a fair question. When we talk Russell Wilson money, that's not real NFL money. A majority of these guys, like I said earlier, the average NFL career is four years. That's it. Um, A lot of guys pass through that league and have a, a fairly short career. A lot of these guys aren't signing $250 million contracts. They're signing contracts that any of us, I think, in this conversation would love to have access to. So, yeah, are they blinded by money and the possibility of fame? I mean, such a small percentage become famous. Sure, they are. Again, I don't know if I can say that's bad. You know, if someone comes to me and says, look, I'm, I'm not making Russell Wilson money, but my parents right now are living in a two-bedroom house in a neighborhood that I'm not comfortable with them living in with my grandparents staying with them, and I can at least make enough money to buy them a house. If And if, if that means I bash my brains in for four years, again, I would be hard-pressed to say, no, you shouldn't do that. Is that somewhat noble then, kind of like taking one for the team in, in multiple regards? Yeah, it kind of is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to risk, you know, when we talk about CT, there's all sorts of other physical uh, you know, issues that come up with the NFL. A lot of these guys, even after four years in the NFL, you know, they spend the latter half of their life unable to walk because their knees are so messed up and their backs are so messed up. And, and there's a lot of physical damage that occurs to these players, not just CTE. But if, if they like if they say I'm, that's the, the sacrifice I am willing to make to provide for the people I care about. That's an interesting question to try and put it into numbers, which maybe is impossible. And we, we covered a little bit of this in our Dangerous Jobs episode. The average life expectancy for a football player is 59.6 years. Yep. The average life expectancy for the average male is 75 years. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure. With with the data being out there, including these numbers, if somebody were to approach me with the contract, it literally would be X million dollars for 16 years of my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, if they know that that's the question and they decide the money over the 16 years, I'm not sure who I am to tell them no. Yeah, especially if, I mean, if it's if it's an altruistic decision. It's, it's not money in my pocket. I'm willing to sacrifice 16 years of my life to make sure that my children have access to a safe place to live, a college education. It's hard for me to say you, you, you don't get to make that decision. Well, to what degree are they making that decision? A lot of the people who make it to the NFL had to start when they were children. True. And a lot of the decisions about joining into this youth sports league were made without their full knowledge and ability to consent which put them on this path, at what point do we really say that the decision is theirs in that regard? I think that's a great question. We can move away from should grown-ass men be able to make decisions about millions of dollars. The question I struggle with is, is it ethical to have your kid play pop order football? Is it ethical to have your kid play high school football? That's a different story. That's a, that's a different question. Because you got to look at maybe, at best, 1% 
of players in, who play in college make the NFL. That's at the college level. You go back to high school and we're talking 1% of 1%. <laughs> you know? So at what point would either of you feel comfortable if you had a, a, a son who was 10 years old and said they want to play football, knowing they're not going to make the NFL? They're not going to. Well, I wonder how much of it is the child saying that they wanted to play versus pressure from the parents. A lot of it is, you know, football is a tradition in many families, and there's also pressure to do well and get recruited so they can go to good colleges. But how much is it an independent decision of that 10-year-old? Well, and this is where I think, you know, Rob, you say that this is a separate question, but I think these questions are actually related because we have that one player in the NFL who is making $250 million on a contract, but how many of these kids that we're talking about now have been inspired by that one player? Sure, of course. And does he, as he makes a living for his family or he makes a living for his own kids, does he carry some responsibility for the kids that are now playing football and subjecting themselves to this path without the $250 million payoff at the end, right? How much responsibility does he bear for that? I don't know what like withdrawing responsibility would look like. I guess it would, is, is this Russell Wilson going on his Twitter and saying, kids, I know I just made $250 million. Don't play football. I don't know how much control someone like a Russell Wilson has over the, the influence he has on young kids. He's great. He was. We'll see if he still is. So we hope he is. Now that he's at Denver. Yeah, he's he's getting up there in years, too. Like, I can't blame Russell Wilson for a, a child who idolizes him deciding to play football. You know, Russell Wilson has skill. Russell Wilson went through the process. Russell Wilson got paid. I don't think, you know, I can say, well, Russell Wilson, you're bad because you succeeded and other people want to succeed just like you. I can't put that on on those players. I don't know how much influence Russell Wilson's words have over people because then everyone would be celibate till marriage. Here in Denver, his words have a lot. If he told me to put a helmet on and slam my head into a wall right now, I'd think about it. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a question about that. How early do kids start playing full contact? Because I'm familiar with young kids playing flag football and generally not having that sort of interaction. 11 or 12 years old is when, when they, they start introducing tackling and hitting and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, if you're 14, 15 years old, you're starting your freshman year of high school football. You're definitely going 100% at, at that level. And if you look, I mean, just, just take a second, go find a 14-year-old <laughs> and take a look at them and ask yourself if you think they should be, you know, bashing their head against somebody else's helmet. And uh, the answer is probably going to be no. And ask them if they think they're going to be the next Russell Wilson. And their answer is probably going to be yes, because they, they're they not rational. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they're like, I'll bang my head against someone else because I think I'm going to be in the NFL. But pro sports are always attractive for children, especially the children who are economically disadvantaged. It has been a, a way out of poverty for a lot of people. There's plenty of stories championed all across professional sports. I don't think there's any way we're going to be able to dull the shine off of that possibility for people who currently see what they potentially could be. Well, I think that is a little bit more insidious than what we've been talking about, right? If you're a kid and you're 10 and you idolize football and you do it because it's fun and that's all fine, but there's kids out there who literally have made football their path out of poverty. Sure. 
And I think that's when it gets really dangerous when they put all their eggs and all their brains into that basket and hope it's going to work out for them. That speaks to maybe systemic failures that there appear to be no other options except for pro sports when clearly there, there can and should be other options out of poverty. This takes us to the second issue that we have with the NFL that we're going to talk about today. And it's impossible to deny that a lot of what we're talking about right now is tied intrinsically to racial issues. And this is another just thing that plagues the NFL specifically, Um, some sports in general, but definitely the NFL. And in fact, I don't think I'm really in a position to comment on how accurate this is. But in a recent Netflix documentary, Colin Kaepernick, this is in Colin black and white compared the NFL draft to slavery. And he said, quote, what they don't want you to understand is what's being established is a power dynamic. Before they put you on the field, teams poke, prod, and examine you, searching for any defect that might affect your performance. No boundary respected, no dignity left intact. I like Colin Kaepernick. I do. I don't know about this argument, though. He's talking about a profession that relies on physical difference and perfection. To argue that the NFL combine is somehow problematic because you're forced to prove your athleticism and subject your body to um, it's kind of fair evaluation. You know, we're about to invest millions and millions of dollars in an athlete, and we want to make sure that that athlete isn't flawed physically you want to play we need you to be fit we need you to have skills show us you have them and we'll pay you a whole shit ton of money so is there a way to do that that isn't dehumanizing is there a way to assess them for their physical abilities but also retain a lot of their personhood in that you know we've seen in recent years not a ton but a, a small number of players who are projected already to be a top 10 NFL draft pick refuse to participate in the combine. Can you do that if you are projected to go in the fifth round and you're a running back from some fairly obscure school? No, you don't get that privilege. But you know, if you're the number one ranked wide receiver in the NFL draft, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that. You have game tape. You've seen what I'm capable of evaluating me on that. But that's 5% of the players have that much power. On the question of autonomy, being able to opt out of those sorts of things, I don't quite understand how much control a player has over where they play. I know that they get traded, but they can't be forced to play somewhere that they don't want to. Or is that just how the NFL works? You're part of the system. You're being paid. You're going to play where we tell you to. If you are drafted by a team, you are the property of that team. You cannot say, I will not show up. If you're drafted by the Broncos, you can't say, no, I'm going to go to Seattle's training camp instead because I want to play there. Seattle would be like, dude, you can't step on the field. (laughs) So the Broncos own your rights. So you, you have absolutely no control at the beginning of your career as to where you end up. Unless, and we've seen a few instances of this, you are a, a superstar caliber player. I think the best example would be Eli Manning, Peyton Manning's brother, God bless Peyton, who, uh, you know, coming out of college, he was at Mississippi. The Chargers, San Diego, then San Diego Chargers, now LA Chargers, but at the time San Diego had the first pick in the draft, and the New York Giants had the second pick in the draft. And Eli was by far 
the number one pick. There was no question at all who, who was going to go first. And San Diego is a fairly dysfunctional organization. So Eli said, I will not play for San Diego. Like if they draft me, they can own my rights, but I will not set foot on that field. Again, we're talking like 1% of players have that much power, a, a, a generational talent. And eventually the Chargers relented. They actually picked him and then immediately traded him to the Giants so that he could go where he wanted. But that's, again, that's we're talking like 1% of the players, maybe less, have enough power to say, I will not play for the team that picks me. Now you sign a four or five-year contract, and then you're free to make decisions after that as to where you want to go. But your, your rights are owned. Don't you think, though, going back to Kaepernick's point, I mean, even some of the language that's used, right? You're saying literally you are owned. You're going to be traded. Oh, I know. When I say it, I know, I know how it sounds. <laughs> and it, No, it's, but it's not you. I mean, you're using the language of the league. And that's not just the NFL, yeah. right? In this case, obviously, the NBA works in the same way. Most sports work in the same way where they own their players. Mm-hmm. They trade the players. Right. Somebody else wants to buy this player. I mean, it's it's literally you are buying and selling a person at the point where this is the kind of language and it's it's accurate. Right. You you cannot go somewhere if your owner doesn't want to let you go there. Does that not give a little bit of validation to what Kaepernick is saying? But they can still opt out of being in the league altogether. There is still a degree of autonomy in choosing to play professionally at all. Mm-hmm. But look at the narrative we're, we're kind of establishing here. So as a kid, you're eight to 10 years old. You've been told if you want to be successful as an adult, this is what you do. You start playing football. You start damaging your body. You start bashing your head against the wall. You do that through college. Now you go to the draft. It's easy to say that you could just choose not to play, but whether it's societal pressure, whether it's coercion or, you know, just the allure of money. Is it really a choice? Like who says no in that situation? I probably wouldn't if it was me. You play your four years and then you're a free agent. The free agency isn't one team trading your rights to another team. When you're a free agent, you get to decide for yourself. Competitive equity is important, right? Like this is a a, a product. And so they need to make sure that the teams that do poorly one year get the best players the next year so that they're not constantly the worst team because no one would watch those teams. So I, I get the model. You decide to enter, enter the draft and you say, I'm whether I end up where I want to end up or not, I'm going to go there for four years. And after four years, if your career lasts beyond four years, again, the average is four, then you are absolutely free to make a decision for yourself. So at the point where most people don't make it <laughs> past because Probably they've been injured to the point they can't play anymore. So at that point, that's when you're allowed your freedom at the point where most people don't reach. Sure. Yeah. That's the risk I guess you take. I mean, CTE is a risk you take. And now being uh, dropped in the middle of uh, Minnesota uh, against your desire for a few years in hopes that you make it to the next contract so you can go where you want to go, I guess is the risk. I don't know if this argument resonates, but it's like, the NFL has to do what's in the best interest of the NFL and the players as well, but like the, the brand, the NFL is a brand mm-hmm. and the NFL has to decide like, you know, you are the best player in the, in college football, right? And I'm sorry that you don't want to play in St. Louis or well, St. Louis doesn't even have a team anymore. You want to play in Cincinnati or Cleveland. We get it. But if you want to play in the league, the rules are you, the worst team gets the first choice. 
And that's just how it is. And if we just, if it was a free for all, like imagine a world where there was no like draft where every player just gets to choose where they want to go. Everyone would be in Kansas city right now. Everyone. (laughs) I mean, it's like, who wants to live in Kansas city? Yeah. Or Buffalo, which is not where I'd want to live either, but you're going to win. So, okay. Let's tone back from, you know, Colin Kaepernick and we'll bring it back one notch here. Because I still think that there's a strong argument to be made that the NFL as an organization is still a racist organization, if not equivalent, Colin Kaepernick's words, the NFL draft to slavery. And I think if we look at where the real money is, even if the minimum salary for an NFL player is $705,000 in 2022, which is more than we're making on the podcast, we'll just say that. Well, my 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 presence might boost. <laughs> we'll be getting closer to it. We'll be getting closer to it. Even if they're making that amount of money, that's not where the real money is. The real money is in the ownership, the management. And over the league's first 82 years, let's start with head coaches. More than 400 head coaches have been hired and only six were black. <laughs> I can't even. There's no defense. It's it's horrible. The NFL's history on, on hiring Black coaches is horrible. I mean, if you look at like offensive coordinators and defense, like you get into like the sub levels of coaching, you're gonna you're gonna find a lot of black coaches. But yeah, in terms of the the face of an organization, the face of a team, the head coach, mm-hmm. the NFL is abysmal. And if we move up the ladder, it gets even worse. There are zero black owners and one black president. So they did institute, I guess, as a a strange like tokenistic nod to this problem they introduced the rooney rule it's such a bizarre rule and so the rooney rule apparently is uh, it requires every team with a head coaching vacancy to interview at least one or more diverse candidates before making a new hire they have to at least talk to somebody of color it's the most tokenistic policy i've ever seen them but could it potentially result in some of the things that they're hoping to do could it bring into the discussion coaches they may not have considered before and actually result in hires. Yeah, I mean, and that's the Rooney Rule argument is, you know, even if if these these African-American black coaches that we're interviewing don't get the job we're offering, at least if they impress, then the word will spread around the league that this is an impressive head coaching candidate. So a foot in the door with the possibility of maybe benefiting as a result down the road is better than no foot in the door at all. I guess, but Every application of the Rooney Rule I've seen so far just seems so blatantly tokenistic. How many black coaches do you guys think are in the NFL currently? Currently? Mm-hmm. I don't actually know, and I'm going to just guess to be a firebrand or something. I'm going to guess zero. No, it's not zero. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> there are currently three. Oh, I was going to say two. No, three coaches. Uh-huh. Lovey Smith, Michael McDaniel. And coach Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin. Where's Levy Smith right now? I thought he was in college right now. Houston Texans. Oh, okay. Might as well be in college. I was going to say, I haven't even heard of that team before. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason. <laughs> that's an NFL team? That's not like a B League no, or something? that's an NFL team. Yeah, they're bad. They're <laughs> the Texans? The Broncos play them this weekend, so I'm okay. Oh, good. You might get a win after your loss to the Seattle. Yeah, anyway. Let's go back to the... the to the to Seattle. The, <laughs> to the Seattle. <laughs> to the Seattle... Seahawks. There you oh, go. Yeah. He's looking at his screen when he says that. I think it's on the screen. 
I know the Seattle Seahawks because I know Marshawn Lynch. I like that guy because I like his trash talking. <laughs> the fact that he doesn't talk at all. Yeah, but the way he did it is amazing. Like <laughs> yes. you can't host a debate podcast and not like Marshawn Lynch. And not like a guy who doesn't talk at all. Shows up at press conferences and sits there silently. He's got. I'm principles. just here so I won't be fined. Is that exactly. Him? So be fined. The greatest <laughs> press conference in NFL in sports history. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, you know the Broncos were recently sold here in Denver. The Walton family bought them, so Walmart owns the Waltons. And Condoleezza Rice is a part owner, just to make it a little weirder. Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One driver, is a part owner too. I love him, so I'm happy about that. But there was one potential black candidate for ownership of the team, and it was like holy shit, is this finally going to happen? <laughs> that we're finally going to have a majority black owner of an NFL team. It didn't because the Waltons have like, what's more than a trillion? A gazillion? A gazillion dollars to spend? But yeah, no no black ownership. Very few black people in, in positions of power and presidents, general managers, right? the people that make decisions. Very few black folk in those positions. Coaches, you know, six ever, three now. NFL's their their record on race, especially when you look at the percentage of their players that are, are black. NFL's horrible. It's horrible. There's, there's no excuse for how horrible they are. Well, much like any of the other issues we're talking about with the NFL, hopefully their acknowledgement of the problems is just a first step towards becoming a more equitable league. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sound skeptical. <laughs> Bunch of white billionaires. Don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to flip the script a little bit from our first two topics, the last issue that we have takes the players where they're certainly victims of things like injuries or perpetuated racism and places them in this case as the perpetrators. So the last thing we wanted to talk about was the league's lax attitude towards crimes that are committed by their athletes. And to give a sense of scale here, there's 8,000 454 different athletes played in the NFL between 2000 and 2014. And guess how many of them were arrested during that period? You want us each to guess? Yeah, let's hear this. I'm going to do it like the price is right and kind of go low. Maybe I'll win. I'm going to guess one. 400. (laughs) About 900. So 400 and 900 out of 8,454. The answer is. 574. So I guess Kelly wins. Yeah, no, she was. I went over. If hey. you go over the price of right, you, the price is right, you lose. So this is about 7% of players were arrested in the NFL. And some players have been arrested up to 10 times. Is this is are we is this violent crime or is this just arrested general like weed? It's more than 50% of the crimes committed by professional football players did include violence. And I okay. think that's the scary part. I mean, 7%, okay, fine. But yeah, over half of the crimes included violence. Yeah, which we can tie in part back to CTE. But um, mm-hmm. Very possibly. Not going to make too many excuses. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, all of these problems, I think, are definitely related. And, you know, certainly, again, not making an excuse for crimes, especially not violent crimes. But At the same time, it's important to maybe acknowledge all of these factors and how they tie together with each other. I mean, I'm the NFL fan here who's bashing the NFL every step of the way because the NFL is horrible at this as well. Historically, they've just been all over the place in terms of how they deal with players that are arrested for violent crimes, especially a majority of them are crimes against women. There's no question. So NFL players aren't just randomly punching people in the street. 
there there is a policy in place how to deal with this but the NFL gives so much power to the commissioner if you if you look at the NFL's policy on it, you know this is multi-step process that you know the second to last step is a committee that recommends to the commissioner what the appropriate punishment for a crime is and then the last step is the commission so you have all of these steps but at the end of the day the the, the power to make a decision about how to deal with these crimes is put in the hands of a person who works for the league like the commissioner works for the NFL not an independent contractor and so when you have a commissioner who is you know getting pressure from owners that if a star player misses x amount of games it's going to affect the bottom line of that team you're going to see decisions that are you know in the Ray Rice decision Ray Rice on video if you haven't seen the video it's horrific beat the shit out of his girlfriend on tape and he had a two game suspension Hey, Ray Rice was really fucking good. <laughs> so, yeah, two games for, you know, a Super Bowl contender. And then you look at someone like Josh Gordon, who I think is an amazing potential as a player, been in the league forever, barely played at all, because he's getting multi-season suspensions for smoking weed. And I understand it's against the rules, but Ray Rice nearly beats his girlfriend to death on camera and gets two games. Josh Gordon, who admittedly is dealing with issues of anxiety and depression, smoking weed so that he doesn't have to take a bunch of pills. His career is ruined. And Ray Rice, who after all this shit went down, Ray Rice was untouchable. But for a minute there, it's like this dude's going to get two game suspension. Do you think that that's the NFL trying to appear as though they're tough on crime, but choosing a crime like smoking weed that won't make them look bad while trying to sweep a crime that will make them look horrible under the rug. Sure. Yeah. I think it's catching up to the NFL now in a way that it really hasn't before. In particular, a lot of people who are lifelong Cleveland Browns fans are disavowing the team entirely for Deshaun Watson. What was that about? How do you do that? That blows my mind. That he's playing for the team or people are giving up their fandom. They had 22 counts of sexual harassment and the Cleveland gave him a 200. I, I'm pretty sure the number I have here is spot on a $256 million contract with 22 pending sexual assault charges, a $256 million guaranteed contract, meaning he gets all $256 million, no matter what happens unheard of. And they offer him that while all of this stuff's going on. But this is the shit that pisses me off. It's insane. It's probably just a, a to point to the desperation of Cleveland. I mean, it's a long-suffering, <laughs> long-flailing team. They would probably do anything to, to try to get a winning season and try to maybe get a Super Bowl win. Who knows? Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. Yeah. yeah I mean, people can hope. But I, I know that a lot of people like born and raised in Ohio are just saying like, no, this is crossing a line. We're absolutely switching our allegiance to different teams now or perhaps giving up watching the NFL altogether. And for what it's worth, <laughs> he did get a multi-game suspension. Sure. He's getting $256 million. Like Cleveland, not only did they bring this guy in, they created a contract for him that basically said, we will not allow you to suffer the consequences of your behavior financially. It is the most unethical professional sports decision I've ever seen. In my life. You know, and that it's allowed to happen, that the NFL has nothing to say about. It just blows my mind. 
And we don't even have the courts to act as a, a safety net because the majority of the cases that involve NFL players are settled out of court. And this is for violent crimes, domestic assault, you know, abuse. These are serious things and they're just, they're settled. And I don't think anybody in their right mind is going to go out and say that there isn't some influence being pushed from the NFL as an organization onto the courts. I mean, the NFL's policy is they have a separate mechanism for punishment. So if you are accused of a crime and manage to evade any sort of punishment in the court of law, the NFL can ignore that decision and impart its own punishment. And that's what happened with Deshaun Watson, right? Because he settled, I think there's 24 cases at this point. Um, I think he settled 22 of the 20. And his argument to the NFL was, well, then I'm innocent. I never got found guilty of anything. And the NFL said, no, we have our own standards. Like you can win in the court of law, but we can still decide that we think you're guilty and punish you. And that's an NFL's attempt to kind of look tough. We're not going to let you buy your way out. We're still going to punish you. But then they're picking and choosing who gets punished based on what's good for the league, not based on the crimes that were committed or who was victimized. Yeah, I mean, I've already said NFL's a brand. It's a multi-billion dollar brand. The NFL will do anything the NFL can do to protect that brand. And if, if that means they have to punish certain players because the public has spoken, then they'll punish those players. And if, if they feel like a player who has done something abhorrent hasn't really caught the attention of the public, Roger Goodell will make decisions that are in the best interest of the league. Cleveland has been vilified for this. A lot of people are more vocal about this than it's ever been when it comes to a team's decision. Is that potentially going to create some change in the way that teams and the league as a whole assess crime? Not if he wins. But that's the thing. Not if he wins. He's got very few opportunities to this year. So we'll see. Yes. It'll be amazing to see in three or four years if Cleveland is a contender on a regular basis. I promise you that stadium is going to be full. Right? They're not going to have half-empty stadiums and they're gunning for a Super Bowl. So success has a very real way of erasing people's ethical qualms. Right? If in three or four years Cleveland sucks, then people are going to still be arguing that you never should have brought the sexual predator onto this team. But if he's winning, I guarantee there people are, are going to be wearing Watson jerseys in Cleveland football games and they're going to fill that stadium up. And if he somehow managed to win a Super Bowl for Cleveland, which is a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> As our apocalypse aficionado. Yeah, he's going to hold that trophy up and they're going to applaud. That's, to me, the central question to all this. What is the NFL going to do? We don't really have any say over that. What is a player going to do? Are they going to decide to take these risks? Brain damage? Are they going to decide how much money is worth, how many years of their life. We don't have any control over that. But what we have control over is, do we watch a league that puts people in harm's way? Do we watch a league that has obvious racist tendencies? Do we watch a league that turns the other way for crime? And if we do, how do we justify that to ourselves? Rob? <laughs> it's, a, it's an addiction. It, it, it's just such an addiction. Like, I, I, I can't make any sort of ethical argument to justify my support of this league. I can't. But I think living in a community where it's just such an integral part of our culture and our identity and living and dying 17 weekends a year based on the performance of a bunch of people that I have no control, I don't know what it is. I can't justify it. But I cannot wake up tomorrow and say, I don't give a shit about the Denver Broncos and how they do. I can't do it. 
let me try to help you out. Let me see if I can I can think of a reason to watch the NFL. I'm in a cult, Josh. <laughs> Just justify my, my, my relationship with my cult leader. I got your back. I got your back. We did talk about the majority of the time the players are victims, the first two issues that we covered. And in our last issue, it's 7% of players have committed crimes. Half of that has been violent. That leaves 93% of the players who are out there as victims of this league I don't see a problem with watching them. I don't see a problem of supporting players who have made this decision, like you said, a lot of times to get themselves out of a situation, to help their family be settled with the amount of money that they're making. I don't feel bad watching a player in that situation, even if that means I'm, as a byproduct of that, supporting a league that's incredibly problematic. That's the justification I'm using to continue watching MLS right now. There have been some major controversies in professional soccer but I, I support the guys in green and gold on, on the pitch every every week. But the league itself is abhorrent, and I'm not going to be giving them my money anymore. I get to climb up on my soapbox here because I'm a NBA fan. And all things told, I actually think the NBA does a pretty decent job as a league of taking care of its players and, and doing the right thing for the most part. They've had much stronger leadership in the NBA than the NFL. Stern was great. Silver's been great. So basically, I'm better than both of you. <laughs> In one regard and one alone. Hey, I'll you take it. You also have 10% of the players in the NBA that you have in the NFL. <laughs> we do have a couple, though. The NFL is like an integral part of my personality. Like Bronco fandom is part of my personality. If like, you asked me, if you just met me to describe myself, Broncos would come up at very early in the description of myself. Yeah, I'm a, a father, I'm a teacher, I'm a debate coach, I'm a Broncos fan. It's pretty much right there is where I would drop that because it has become my identity is tied up in this team. Well, the first step towards dealing with an addiction is admitting you've got one. <laughs> and I think at least, Rob, you're very clear that you've got the addiction. But yeah. maybe uh, maybe Kelly and I can help you move this forward and give you some alternatives to watching NFL. Good luck. Alternatives to the Broncos. I don't know. <laughs> hey, you've got a pretty good NBA team in Denver too, and you've got some uh, injured players coming back online. That I think it'll be a good season next year. If the seasons don't overlap, Josh, I can go from one addiction to the next, just very fluidly. <laughs> yeah, all right, that's my attempt, Kelly. What do we got? A season that does overlap is the MLS season. That goes for like nine months a year, and you've got a team in Denver too. I, I have gone to my share of games. <laughs> you could always be prepping for the zombie apocalypse. Getting your basement ready. I told you my prep is going to be to cook a really nice meal and then just let those zombies get my ass. I have no <laughs> chance of fighting them. If you guys missed our zombie episode from last year almost, we do have Halloween coming up soon. And uh, personally, that's one of my favorite episodes we put out. So you could check out last Halloween, Zombie Apocalypse. Would you rather be a zombie or a human? Zombie. And Rob and Kelly go head to head on that topic. Zombie. We don't need to talk about it. But <laughs> Rob can listen to even more episodes of our show instead of watching football. I can do both. <laughs> I have answers for every argument here. <laughs> I'll put the audio of the podcast and the, watch the game. Come on. <laughs> In the meantime, I think it's pretty clear that Rob thinks or at least hopes that the Denver Broncos are going to be winning the Super Bowl this year. If you'd like to let us know who your pick for this year's Super Bowl champion will be, you can let us know as usual at our socials, Twitter and Facebook, at IndubitablyPod. Or if you want to email us Super Bowl predictions, that'd be random, but hey, we're here for you. We're at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. I know Rob is very committed to the Denver Broncos. 
I grew up in a Niners household. And then when I moved to the Northwest, I became like full-blown Seahawks fan. Oh, you're going to go there, aren't you? I, I got to take my dad to a Seahawks-Niners game. So I've got a very like emotional tie to both of those teams. So either one I'd be happy with. I'm okay with the Niners. I'm okay. The Seahawks, that still stings. It's a little raw. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's been like 10 years. It still hurts. <laughs> I hear that the uh, Patriots are a pretty popular team. You shut up. The Patriots are horrible, Josh, but if you want to pick the Patriots, you can pick the Patriots. Go Broncos.